Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 22 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries both natural and supernatural from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Bob Lazar and Area 51. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, as always, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. We'd like to take a moment uh, at the top of the show to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Uh, Today, we want to thank, by name, Lawrence Z, Maria N., Patricia R., Ron S., and Ryan W. Through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at sqpn.com. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, the, we've talked about Area 51 already, and we in that show, uh, which was... Uh, Within our first four shows, I think it was like our yeah. second or third show, might have been mm-hmm. our fourth one. Um, we talked to mentioned this this fellow named Bob Lazar, and uh, yeah, and and we you said we were going to come back because there's more to say about him. So, what is it? Uh, who is Bob Lazar? Well, um, back in 1989, a Nevada man, Bob Lazar, made international news when he went public. He claimed to have worked at Area 51, where he reverse engineered flying saucers that were kept at the facility. Uh, He was the man who made Area 51 famous. Before him, it was not known by the general public. And now there's a new documentary about Bob Lazar. So we're going to be taking a look at the documentary and the whole Bob Lazar case. Okay, so uh, so this guy really is sort of the linchpin to all the mythology and the information we have about uh, Area 51. And so it, that that makes sense that we want to you know, dig deep into his story. So um, what do we have to work with? What are what are the claims that are being made by and about Bob Lazar? Well, uh, so let's start by talking about the uh, the new documentary. It's called Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. It's available on Amazon and iTunes and YouTube for a fee and other places. It's made by a filmmaker named Jeremy Corbell, and it features extensive interviews with Bob Lazar and also with a journalist from Las Vegas named George Knapp. Uh, Knapp was the man in 1989 who first interviewed uh, Lazar for, uh, I believe it was KLAS Television, um, the station that Knapp worked for. And uh, it, it the documentary includes a lot of footage from 1989, as well as contemporary footage that, uh, that uh, Corbell went and got in the making of the documentary. Um, it's an entertaining documentary. It has an interesting mood. At times, it has these kind of poetic, psychedelic interludes with this sort of pseudo-profound narration, like kind of like Chris Carter narration from the X-Files or something. <laughs> um, and it's got a dramatic structure. There's this, it starts out with um, with Corbell himself receiving texts from Lazar saying there's an FBI raid on his business 
and happening right now. And then we back up and we build up to that. And then that FBI raid is kind of the climax of the documentary. So it's a very inter, uh, interesting documentary. I found it personally, though, intellectually unsatisfying, um, even though I, I thought it was enjoyable. It basically presents a kind of stripped down version of Lazar's claims. It doesn't go into all of them, all the different things he's claimed over the years, and it doesn't lay out or analyze his claims systematically. Um, it didn't ask a lot of the questions that um, that I thought needed to be asked or make points that I thought needed to be made. One of the things, since I work as an apologist, I kind of think simultaneously like both a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I, I want to make the best case I can for both sides. And I think that's something that listeners to this podcast you know, will probably have picked up on, that I try to be fair to both sides. I try to argue both ways. And so what I was hoping the documentary would be would be something like that, that it would you say, OK, here, here are Lazar's claims. Let's take them one by one. Let's look at the evidence for and against them. And it didn't do that. At least it didn't do that in the sharp way. I mean, the focused, kind of hard-hitting way that I hoped it would. So I found it a little disappointing in that respect, but it was still entertaining. In terms of what Bob himself claims, he says that he, uh, start with his educational and work background, he, he says he claims, he, he, he says he received master's degrees both from uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, near where you are, exactly. uh, Dom, and also Caltech, out near where I am. And he uh, claims to have worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories in New Mexico. Um, and he then left the employ of Los Alamos. And in 1988, he was working as a self-employed photo processor back, you know, before we had digital cameras, when <laughs> right. everybody had to go to a photo shop yeah. to get their photos processed. Ask your so parents, he, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was this thing called film. Yeah. Uh, and you had to drive to this little booth and drop it off. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so he was independently processing photos then. But according to him, he had previously, back when he worked at Los Alamos, he had met uh, Edward Teller. Edward Teller was a very famous 20th century physicist who would have reason to visit Los Alamos. Um, he was one of the fathers of the atomic bomb and so forth. Uh, and then according to Lazar, as far as he can tell, it was Edward Teller who who played a role in him getting a job at Area 51. The claim is basically that somehow Edward Teller had recommended him for this mm -hmm. position. Um, he claims his background was then because if you're going to work at Area 51, you're going to get a background check. And uh, he says his background was checked by a man named Mike Thigpen and that he then worked at an not at Area 51 itself exactly, but at an associated area just adjacent to Area 51 in the Nevada desert called S4. And he worked, he says, at S4 for about six months. While he was there, he was shown uh, briefing documents that provided an overview. He says there was like 100, 120 briefing documents they had in this little room. And when he wasn't working on the project, he was like, you know, when they first brought him in, he was expected to sit here and read these. And he says most of them uh, dealt with like the attempts to reverse engineer 
the UFOs that they had and that they were kind of at a stalled out point. But these briefing documents provided a history of um, of what they'd been doing to try to figure out this technology. And there were also other briefing documents that talked about the inhabitants uh, of the, the original inhabitants of the flying saucers, that they were the race popularly known now as the greys, you know, the little short people with the big heads and the big eyes. Um, the briefing documents, he said, referred to them as being from Zeta Reticuli, which is the star system that is commonly thought to have been shown to Betty Hill on the star map that she was shown by by the aliens. Um, according to these briefing documents, they had been on Earth, apparently, even millions of years ago, and they'd been guiding our development for at least 10,000 years. Um, he says that uh, we had these f nine flying saucers, um, most of which looked like they were in working order. It wasn't clear to Lazar exactly how we got these, whether the aliens themselves gave them to us or we found them and dug them up or exactly how we got them. But they had them in these hangars built into the side of a mountain out at S4 um, that were camouflaged to the hangar doors were camouflaged to look like part of the mountain. And we had had an agreement with the uh, Greys to kind of train us. And they were actually here at S4 as some kind of scientific cultural exchange program until the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, so this is like, you know, a little more than a decade. This is about a decade before Lazar comes to work there. Um, there was some kind of a dispute that happened with the guards at Area 51, and the aliens ended up leaving, uh, but they said they'd come back at some future date that Lazar didn't know, and uh, we kept the flying saucers. So then he's brought in, he says, to try to reverse engineer the propulsion system of the ship. Um, based on his background, you know, in engineering and so forth from MIT and Caltech. Um, <clears throat> he says that they were kind of stalled. And so he was brought in sort of like for a fresh perspective. And according to him, the drive system for the flying saucer uh, runs off element 115, which at the time was not yet discovered. Uh, we've since manufactured some element 115, and it's now known as Muscovium. Uh, it was one of the recently named elements on the periodic table. Also, he claimed that the drive system ran on antimatter. And basically, he said that the drive created uh, gravity waves that would then guide and move the ship um, he compares it to like if you put a bowling ball on a on a on a on a bed and then punch down on the mattress in front of the bowling ball, it'll make the bowling ball roll towards where you've punched it down. And this is kind of a similar space warping gravity drive that would pull things toward it. Um, he claims that the government has a, a, an astonishingly large quantity of element 115, that they have about 500 pounds of it, and that it's in a stable form, uh, which is very different than the element 115 we were able to manufacture. Uh, with great effort, we were able to manufacture four atoms of it, and they had a half-life of just a tiny fraction of a second, like, you know, very, very, you know, small, like, Right, teeny teeny fraction, and then and then they were no, they fell apart, and were no longer element one fifteen. When you 
when you get to the top end of the periodic table of elements, all of none of those things actually occur in nature as far as we know. Right. Um, and they are extremely hard to make, extremely rare and extremely short lived uh, yep. as far as our science goes. Yeah. What happens is um, as the nucleus of an atom gets bigger, it gets harder for the forces to hold it together. And so they have a tendency to fission and split into smaller elements to emit neutrons, for example, um, that cause or or um, uh, other like particles that will then cause them like alpha particles that will cause them to turn into other elements. And that's why nuclear fission happens with those big, heavy elements. But it is hypothesized there may be an island of stability somewhere up there where they're not as radioactive and they have longer half-lives. In any event, he claims he, uh, and he's kind of ambiguous on this, it appears he claims that, or claimed at some point, that he took a small sample of element 115 um, but the government may or may not have stolen it back. Mm. In any event, uh, he started, he says, while he was there to tell other people about his work. And he even took people out to the desert to watch test flights of UFOs over Papoose Lake, which is uh, in the S4 area near Groom Lake, which is the, it's a dry, both of these are dry lake beds. They're lakes that used to have water in them, but now they're dried up. And um, Groom Lake is the one at Area 51. Papoose Lake is the one uh, next to it. Um, He then, as a result of that, began to be threatened and intimidated in various ways by security forces connected with Area 51 and S4. And so finally, he went public uh, with George Knapp in part to prevent the threats against him from being carried out. So like to make himself too big a target for anybody to shoot at, so to speak. And so these are the claims where they were yeah. not you made a judgment about any of them yet. Right. But, uh, these are his claims. So <clears throat> what would be the counterclaims? What would people say uh, uh, in, in opposition uh, to these claims? Well, there's there are several different versions of uh, probably the mildest counterclaim is that Lazar's story is basically true, but that he's embellished it. A little bit uh, like making up degrees that he doesn't really have to make himself seem more important. You know, sometimes people will embellish their educational or work record a little little more sinister than that would be the claim that um, that he did work there. But to some degree, he was the victim of a disinformation campaign that he was basically a tool. And uh, they brought him out there and showed him stuff and told him stuff about it in order to manipulate him. Maybe to find out, will he go to the press with this, in which case we know we cannot trust him with the real secrets, or maybe to get this idea out there and maybe convince the Soviets that we've got technology from aliens and they better not mess with us because hmm. this is the end of the Cold War. Russia was just about to fall apart. Um, and or or maybe for some other reason. But uh, but, you know, maybe he he's telling the truth as he sees it, but he's been deliberately deceived. Um, and even he is willing to say stuff like, I can only tell you about the engines I saw and worked on these documents that I saw in the briefing room and was expected to read. I have no idea if what they're saying is true. This is just what was told to me. Um, so that's 
kind of the next level counterclaim. And then there's the kind of final counterclaim, which is the strongest, that Lazar is just a hoaxer and that he made up all these wild claims uh, for some reason, presumably for the thrill of getting away with a hoax or for attention or something like that. Apparently not money because he has never written a book or anything like that. So, uh, so we have the claims and counterclaims. What what do we know? What evidence do we have uh, to for and against these various claims? Well, uh, it's now well established that um, Lazar's claim that Area Fifty One exists is true. Uh, that was not commonly known when he uh, when he, when he initially came out in nineteen eighty nine, but it's now well established. It's the world's most famous secret base. <laughs> um, it's also apparently true that there is a an affiliated institution called S4 that's out there in the desert. That's one of the things that uh, George Knapp was able to confirm uh, by talking to sources in the government that there, yeah, there is an S4, and that also was not commonly known at the time. Um, Lazar did work at Los Alamos. Um, we know that's the case. Initially, when Los Alamos was contacted, they said, we never heard of this guy. But subsequent to that, um, a newspaper was found that recorded um, Lazar working there. In fact, it talked about him building a kind of a jet car. This is one of his hobbies. He builds jet propelled cars and bicycles um, for fun. And so there was a newspaper story about him there from Los Alamos. And also there was a phone book for Los Alamos that he was listed in. But the way he was listed in it was interesting. Um, the phone book didn't just include people who were employed by the uh, Los Alamos Nat Nat National Laboratories itself. It also included people who were working there as contractors. And um, the uh, coding next to uh, Lazar's name in the phone book would suggest that he was not an employee of Los Alamos itself. He was the employee of a contractor named Kirk Meyer. Uh, and that so he was one of many Kirk Meyer employees working there. And it seems that rather than being like a scientist himself there, he may have been like a technician assisting scientists. Okay. Uh, we also know now that element uh, 115 is real, and we've it is possible for that element to exist because we've made it. And we do know also that Lazar did take people out to view test flights of some kind over Papoose Lake. And there's even shaky, grainy 1989 videotapes of this happening, <laughs> which you can yeah. find on YouTube. Why can't anyone ever use a tripod? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just, people, if you're going to take video of, of these amazing things, use a tripod. All yeah. right. So um so that's the that's the the various evidence uh, the facts uh, that are in, that are in in not in contention. So mm -hmm. what let's take this from the faith perspective which we always do first is there a faith perspective on Bob Lazar's story? Well, if it, it as we've discussed previously talking about aliens on this show, the existence of aliens doesn't really have an impact on the Christian faith one way or another. It would just mean God has made additional intelligent creatures elsewhere, which we already know he's done in at least one case in the spiritual world because there are angels. And so it would just mean, OK, he also made some additional creatures that are intelligent here in the material world and presumably made them similarly to he did uh, the way he did us using the 
natural forces of evolution on their planet and guiding them and so forth. So that that wouldn't be a big deal. Um, there are some statements that Lazar has made over the time, over over the years, that do engage this area a little more. Um, I was able to find uh, one uh, interview with him where uh, he did say something about aliens and religion, but he didn't really want to go into it because he said it would just upset everybody. Mm. And so that's a little ominous. Um, He also, and I'll have a link to an article for this in the show notes, but he also um, talked to a couple of different people, one of them being George Knapp, about the aliens referring to us as containers and saying that containers like us are very, very hard to find. And he didn't know exactly what they meant by containers, but he he thought they might mean containers for souls and that they had an interest in our souls and maybe harvesting our souls or something. But (laughs) it doesn't seem from what I've been able to find that that was directly claimed in the briefing documents. That was more his interpretation. Also, it was apparently indicated in the briefing documents, he says he saw that aliens had interfered in human development. And some people might say, well, how would that square with the idea that God made us? you know, which is clearly taught in, in scripture. And, and it, it wouldn't necessarily conflict with that. Um, the, uh, uh, I mean, we can do genetic engineering now. We're on the verge of being able mm-hmm. to do it on a much broader scale. And if it turned out that a, uh, that another alien race had come in and done a little genetic engineering on us, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, change the fact that fundamentally God's in control of everything. And even if he uses secondary causes to achieve his ends, um, he's still ultimately responsible for our creation, just like he's responsible for the creation of the world. We kind of talked about that a little bit in our episode on transhumanism. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right. So uh, that's the faith perspective. And and it's interesting. What about... um, and this is probably going to be the bulk of what we discussed, the the reason yeah. perspective on on this these claims and evidence. Okay, so uh, one thing that's often pointed out in Lazar's favor is that he took some lie detector tests that he passed. Um, and if you take lie detector tests seriously, that would give you reason to give some credence to his claims. I don't take lie detector tests seriously. Lie detectors are not reliable. I mean, maybe in the future, we're going to have brain-reading lie detectors that are reliable. But right now, lie detectors are unreliable enough that they, I mean, we know they've missed like spies. Kim Philby in uh, the UK, who was a Soviet agent and also working high up in British intelligence, he would like take a tranquilizer before every lie detector test and sail through it. Mm-hmm. Um, other people just have no trouble Lying. I mean, sociopaths, for example, have weird emotional responses to things and um, and could have like no moral compunction about lying and feel very confident in themselves. And and again, just sail through a lie detector test. And so lie detectors are unreliable enough that they are not used as evidence in American courts uh, these days. Right. So I don't I don't give Bob's claims any particular credence on the basis of lie detector tests. Um, one of the things that uh, people will ask who who do give credence to his claims is, well, how would he have known some of these things that he did know 
that were not common knowledge at the time. And uh, if his story was just fundamentally untrue, how would he know these things? And we'll come back to that. Um, there are a bunch of interesting points in his story, but unfortunately for me, they involve multiple instances of what I call Sherlock Holmes in the case of the missing evidence. <laughs> um, this is where you make a very interesting claim that would really support your story if we had the evidence. But for one convenient reason or another, we don't have the evidence. Mm. So, for example, um, his degrees at MIT and Caltech, he claims he had these master's degrees, um, but. MIT and Caltech says they never granted any degrees to this guy, that they they don't they he wasn't a student there. Um now the argument, the counter argument to that is, well, the government disappeared these degrees so that uh, they erased the records of them so that uh, they could discredit him. Well, um that would be hard to do, number one. Um I mean, what, there's not a yearbook or right. something? I mean, if if they printed a yearbook there would have been hundreds or thousands of copies of it with Bob Lazar listed in the yearbook. And there's no way they can go out into people's homes and retrieve all those yearbooks and replace them with sanitized copies. This right. is a point that I frequently make in in apologetics regarding scripture when people say, oh, someone took this out of the Bible. Really? They went out to the desert and dug up all those forgotten copies that archaeologists have now found and sanitized them and reburied them? You know, it, it, <laughs> right. it, 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 that doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, so it would be very hard for them to sanitize away degrees like that. Um, but and why would they go to the effort when they there are other ways to discredit him? But fundamentally, we don't have the evidence that supports his claim. There's no evidence of these degrees. So we have missing evidence. Uh, similarly, Edward Teller says he said and he's passed on now, but he said he did not remember meeting Bob Lazar. Uh, he didn't say he didn't meet him, but he didn't remember meeting him. And, and this would, this would have been closer in time to that alleged meeting, right? Yeah, this, this, this would have decades later. No, this was would have been in the 1990s, so it would have been just a few years uh, difference mm -hmm. um, from the 1980s when he worked at Los Alamos. So um, again, there's no evidence to support this claim. Uh, Lazar, even though he seems to have claimed to have had some 115. He hasn't produced it. Now, if he had stable 115, that would really support his claim, mm -hmm. because where is he going to get stable 115? Um, but we don't have the evidence. He hasn't produced it if he's still got it. Um, and it and it doesn't fit with what we know about the 115 we've manufactured. I mean, it's hypothetically possible there could be a stable isotope of 115, but it's not the one we made. And so, again, we, we just don't have evidence to support his story here. His story also, in addition to having missing evidence, um, contains claims that are implausible. Now, I know he said Edward Teller. Apparently, the story is he he kind of showed off his his rocket car to Edward Teller and that impressed Teller and um uh, and led Teller to make a recommendation. But how likely is it really that someone who's working as a self-employed photo processor is going to be, even with a couple of, of degrees, is going to be hired to reverse engineer an alien spacecraft drive? No matter how, uh, how impressive his rocket car is. Car is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you would expect someone with like a 
doctorate in physics or engineering or something like that. Not a guy who's just claiming a couple of of master's degrees, right. uh, especially not one who's down on his luck enough to not even be working currently in the industry and to be working as a photo processor. Right. There it's had like to he, be 150 other guys in this country more qualified than he was yeah. at the time. Yeah. So um, it's unlikely someone with his work and educational background would be hired. And it's also unlikely, even if he were hired, that they would show him the kinds of briefing documents that they did, according to his claims. Because one of the things about the way these projects work is the information is highly compartmentalized. For example, when um, now, if we had alien spacecraft, this would be a secret equal and beyond the making of the atomic bomb in magnitude. Mm -hmm. But when the Manhattan Project was underway out there in New Mexico, um, what they did was they divided the work crew up into teams and you were only given the information that you needed to do your job in your team. So they had lots of people who did not even know they were working on an atomic bomb. All they know, they the for example, a lot of the wives of the of the uh, scientists who were out there back in the forties uh, were bored out of their minds in the desert, and they were desperate to do something. And so the um, the the uh, facility, and this was under the this is the idea of Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist. Uh, they used since they didn't have mechanical machines to do the calculations for them; these all had to be done by hand. And so they took the the wives and organized them into teams to run the calculations they needed to do as part of the atomic bomb design. And they became known as computers because it was their <laughs> job to compute. Right. And later, that term got transferred to a machine that does the same thing. But originally, a computer was a person that does computing, just like originally a typewriter was a person who does typewriting. <laughs> um, but uh, it, even among the scientists, there was a big compartmentalization of information. You only were told what you needed to do. And so even if he had been brought in, Lazar had been brought in to reverse engineer this ship and its engine, why would they be giving him briefing documents talking about Zeta Reticuli and 10,000 years of involvement and manipulation and things like that? That doesn't make any sense. Okay. So that's implausible right there. Then there are scientific claims that Lazar makes that seem sloppy and just don't make any sense. Um, and I'll have a link in the show notes to a critique of uh, Lazar's claims uh, by an actual physicist. So you can read this and he puts it in layman's language so you can understand it. But just reading it myself, um, I was kind of floored by a couple of the claims that Lazar had made in the past. One of them, I mean, just based on my knowledge of physics, one of the claims that he makes, because this is a, a gravity manipulation drive, and he says there's something he calls a gravity A wave. And this is one of his terms that he uses that the drive apparently involves a gravity A wave. And he says it's the same thing that's ordinarily called the strong nuclear force. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Um, gravity and the nuclear, there are four fundamental forces that we know of. Uh, gravity, electromagnetism, 
the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. Right. This is basic and, high school <clears throat> physics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they each have different properties. So gravity has very different properties than the strong nuclear force. Gravity, among other things, has unlimited distance. Um, it can if you have a um, a mass that's that you know produces gravity like the sun, it there's no extent to how far that gravity will extend. Um, it can extend for light years and have a very slight gravitational tug on distant stars. The strong nuclear force, by contrast, the reason it's called a nuclear force is because it works in the nucleus of an atom. It has a very short range. And consequently, uh, what the strong nuclear force does is it it helps um, it it helps stick together the subatomic particles that make up the nucleus, and it does not extend way beyond the nucleus. Which is then Lazar's next bizarre claim that was just so bizarre that it leapt out at me. He claims that the gravity A wave or the strong nuclear force in an atom of one fifteen extends beyond the perimeter of the atom, not the perimeter of the nucleus. In fact, it's true with an atom, the strong nuclear force does very slightly go beyond the uh, the, the nucleus, but because of the way it works, it does not go very far. And if it, it would not go beyond the uh, all of the electron orbits and of 115 and extend out beyond that. So that just that kind of claim makes no sense. It sounds like he just doesn't know what he's talking about in terms of physics. Uh, so that's those are some reasons to doubt Lazar's story. We got okay. a lot of instances of missing evidence. We have implausible claims, and then we have scientific claims that just sound like gobbledygook that don't make any sense. Okay. <clears throat> but to go back and revisit this, the evidence in his favor. Well, how did he know what he knew? Because he did know some things that were not common knowledge at the time. And it seems to me that there are uh, there are a few basic options. One of them is he could have been a real worker at Area 51 or S4. He could have been not, not reverse engineering a flying saucer, but doing something out there, there. There has to be someone mopping the floors, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they need photo processing done out at Area 51. <laughs> right, they right. Get all that you know, gun camera footage and test flight footage and stuff. Uh, so so he might have actually worked there and then made the rest up. Um, if he didn't work there, he may have known someone who did. He may have had a drinking buddy. You know, there, there are bars out there around Area 51 and in Las Vegas and people get to talking over drinks and he may have, he may have known somebody um, who gave him basic information about, okay, there is... An Area 51, there is an S4, things like that. And then he he made the rest up. Or if he didn't know somebody out there, he may have just done his research. The, even though it wasn't common knowledge, uh, you it, it was known that there was an Area 51 among some people. It was uh, all George Knapp had to do was call, I believe, a press office to get the existence of S4 con- confirmed. Um and if given that even though they kind of keep it quiet, there are test flights going on out there at Area 51 and at Papoose Lake. And you could just be a hiker who saw them one day and said, "Ooh, that's interesting. I wonder how often they do that. And 
you know, he could have then led people out there to see these things once he figured out the schedule. So um, so I don't see it as uh, being impossible for him to have this knowledge. He may have he may have worked there. He may have known someone who did or he may have just done his research. When we come to some of his more specific claims, like element 115, well, there had been speculation about higher elements for for ages. So that's not new. He could have just picked that up from scientific speculation. Um, gravity waves as a even as a mode of transport. That's that's another thing that was part of scientific speculation. You even run across that concept in science fiction. That's essentially what warp drive is in Star Trek. Right. Um, Area 51, he could have known or NS4 could have known about him from local lore. And then there's this Mike Thigpen guy. Now, he says his background was checked by Mike Thigpen. And in the documentary that Jeremy Corbell did, he says, Corbell does, says that he contacted Thigpen. He found him and he contacted him. He talked to him. And Thigpen didn't want to go on camera, but admitted that he did do background check work and he did remember Bob Lazar. So he kind of off camera, according to Corbell, so we're trusting Corbell's word here, did kind of sort of confirm parts of Lazar's story. But he didn't say, I ran a background check on Bob Lazar. At least Corbell doesn't indicate that he said that, which makes me wonder, could Thigpen be the drinking buddy? Mm-hmm. Did did Lazar know Thigpen and Thigpen told him, was a background check agent and told him about this secret facility he was doing background checks for. And that's where uh, Lazar got some of this knowledge. The fact is, is if Mike Thigpen was a federal uh, employee tasked with the, with this sort of secret work, he would still be under uh, legal obligation to not disclose anything about it. I mean, Potent- he w- potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Although so, he is in, an, he is doing another job now, apparently. But that, that, that requirement goes, you know, continues it on even after you've left can. that job. It can extend. Yeah. It can. So, I mean, it's plausible. There are plausible explanations for why he would say what he has. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, if if he was the drinking buddy that gave Lazar all this information, he might not want to admit to that either. <laughs> that would also <laughs> probably be legally stick, a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Stick with the undeniable. Yeah, I did that work. And yeah, I remember Bob Lazar. Yes. <laughs> Just don't ask me about did we meet in a bar or what did we talk about there? Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that kind of brings us to the end of the documentary where we have the, um, the FBI raid because this, and the way the documentary sets it up, it, it, this is presented as if it's evidence for Lazar's claims. Why would the FBI raid if there was nothing there? Exactly. So the, the idea is, so short before, just before we get to the raid sequence in the documentary, um, Lazar and Corbell go out into the woods and like turn off or throw away their mobile phones and make a secret tape that apparently has to do with element 115 and the question of does Lazar have any of it. And the idea is that they're going to put this recording away somewhere safe so it can be used in the future if needed. And then, and they have this conversation in the woods, and then the next day, the FBI uh, raids Lazar's place of business, which is in um, uh, Langsburg, Michigan. It's called United Nuclear, 
And what he does is he sells he sells radiation detectors, he sells special scientific equipment, things like that. Yep. Um he's he's and so um that's how he's making a living these days. Now, according to a title card they put up in the documentary, uh they say this conversation, the one they had in the woods, was directly referenced during the raid. But they don't say how it was referenced. Uh, they don't say what exactly was said, which to me it starts getting fishy. Why can't you just tell me what you were how this how this conversation was referenced? Um also Corbell doesn't show us the conversation. They he kind of like speeds up the camera and races through it in a kind of herky jerky way, so you can't actually tell what they're saying. So we've got this mysterious conversation that they're kind of showing us, but deliberately concealing the content of. Mm. And then we're told that it was referenced in this raid, but we're not told what was said about it. Um the only evidence we're shown on screen that the raid occurred is we have a rear angle photo of a woman wearing a shirt that on the back of it says FBI evidence response team. But we're not shown like <clears throat> video footage of of agents, you know, walking around Lazar's place of business or anything like that. And there's no interview. Corbell does not interview an FBI spokesperson about this or what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. According instead he just interviews Lazar and he interviews Lazar's assistant. Um according to Lazar, uh the reason the FBI gave him and a bunch of other agencies that also showed up. But the reason the FBI gave him is they were looking for information about a customer who 2 years ago purchased potentially toxic material from him. And he kind of laughs at that and dismisses it, says, if that's all they wanted, if they just wanted this paperwork, they could have called me on the phone. They didn't need to come in with this massive presence and go through my computers and things like that. Um, so the in implication is they're looking for something more than that. They also talk to the uh, to Lazar's employee, his assistant, who comments on how dramatic the raid was with all these people there. And he says it's like they didn't know what we had in here. They thought we could have had anything. So they kind of came in loaded for bear. Um, so th all this got me to wondering because they're not. I mean, the implication is what the FBI is looking here for is UFO stuff and specifically that they would be looking to see if Lazar has element 115. Of course, you know. of course, the question is, is why now all these years later? Like what? what uh, would well, be the apparently because they just had this conversation and even though they turned off and threw away their phones in the woods, somehow the FBI was surveilling them. Mm -hmm. So they just had this conversation. So now's the time to sweep in and 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 try to find the 115 or whatever. Um, also, one thing I neglected to mention is at the beginning of the film where Corbell is receiving these texts from Lazar, he's like in a darkened hotel room and his phone lights up and he starts receiving these texts saying FBI raid now and so forth. And um, to me, I'm quite sure this footage is staged mm -hmm. after the fact is like a recreation. Okay. Of what happened, because I don't think they really had a camera set up and rolling in the darkened hotel room just right. at the moment the text start to come in. Right. That's what I, that's exactly what I was thinking is like, why was the camera 
conveniently rolling at that point. Right. So so okay. as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, they're obviously reconstructing that. How much of the rest of the story can I trust? And I said to myself, well, if um, if the FBI did raid his place of business, there should be some kind of publicly available record of it. After all, a number of years ago, when they also raided his place of business, there was a public record of it. It made the newspapers. Right. So um, and it's a small thought, town, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought, well, the first step is try to figure out the date on which this occurred, because then you can look up the record. So I emailed Jeremy Corbell and said, could you tell me I'm a podcaster, I'm doing this show, <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about your documentary. Can you let me know the date that this happened? And I didn't hear back. Of course. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't know, does that, does that mean he's on a trip? Does that mean he didn't see the email? Does that mean he doesn't want to answer? I don't know. So I also check the, I, I go to like Google News, you know, and so where you can search all these newspapers all over the world. And there is no reference that I can find to the FBI raiding uh, Lazar's place of business. So I'm starting to get a little more suspicious. So I said, well, let's check with the FBI. So, um, <clears throat> So I called the Michigan FBI and um, I spoke with an agent and the agent was extremely helpful. It turns out the agent was at the raid. Hmm. So uh, so the raid did occur. Uh, they, they were not making that up. And so I want to give them full credit for that. Uh, the agent indicated that the agent was personally present. And the agent also said, uh, the FBI was at the address executing a search warrant. Uh, the agent says, I can't discuss the specifics of the case that brought us to the business, but Mr. Lazar's explanation is accurate. There was no UFO nexus to the search. So uh, apparently Lazar's claim that they were trying to find records connected with a former customer of his who had ordered some potentially dangerous materials was... Um, was uh, was what he was told by the FBI. Now, at this point, I'm going to speculate. I have not asked the FBI about this. I have not asked Jeremy Corbell or Bob Lazar about this. But are there? Can I imagine a scenario that would lead the FBI to do this kind of raid? Well, um, the FBI, being the Federal Bureau of Investigation, investigates federal crimes, not just local things. Mm -hmm. uh, but violations of federal law. And um, we know since 9-11 that a big chunk of their duties has been counterterrorism. So if you have a business called United Nuclear and the FBI shows up investigating someone who has ordered hazardous materials from a place called United Nuclear, um. I would suspect this is part of some kind of counterterrorism investigation, that they're not um, they're not there because they're worried that the customer is going to hurt himself with whatever he ordered. Mm -hmm. They're worried the customer is going to hurt other people with whatever he ordered. And it could be something chemical. So it could be a chemical attack, although since it's called United Nuclear, it could be a, a radiological attack. The guy they might be afraid that the guy's going to build a dirty bomb which is not the same thing as a nuclear bomb. A nuclear bomb makes a nuclear explosion, which is huge. A dirty bomb uses radioactive material that then gets blown by a normal explosion to irradiate an area. 
And um, so so I'm thinking some kind of bomb, maybe a, maybe a dirty bomb is what they're investigating. And if they're investigating that, it would make sense to me that they would swoop in suddenly and try to go through the computers and seize whatever emails they could have from this guy, from this customer and other things. And since Bob himself has had some encounters with the law in the past, um, that uh, they might wonder, is he even in on it? And as the assistant said, it's like they didn't know what we had in here and they came in loaded for bear as a result. So actually, to me, that's a plausible story, even if there's nothing about UFOs here. But to be clear, we're in no way suggesting that that uh, that Bob Lazar has committed a crime no, or is connected no. to terrorism. Absolutely not. We are not claiming that. I'm just yeah. speculating on why the FBI might have conducted the raid if it wasn't to find element 115 or something otherwise right. related to UFOs. And why this, they might have conducted it in the way that they did, as as, yeah. as Bob Lazar himself described it. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, <clears throat> we don't want to, you know, get, get ourselves in any trouble by no, by, no, no. by suggesting it, anything make, untoward. Make, making make just just pure speculation based on the facts, not making any claims that uh, any of this is the exact reason why. Um, and it, so that that that's you know uh, astonishing and 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 it's uh, you know interesting news that you that you're presenting to us there. So. Uh, with all of this, um, what is the bottom line on Bob Lazar's claims about Area 51 and what he may or may not have done there in 1989? Well, I think it's possible that he may have actually worked at Area 51. So I think it's possible that there is a, a you know part of his story that's true. Um, it's also possible that he was just a complete hoaxer who did his research. Um, either way, though, I don't think that it's likely that his whole story is true. Uh, I think we we probably have a mix here of, uh, of, of both truth and falsity. However, I would say that Lazar does, even though I think he ultimately is to some degree a hoaxer, uh, either that or he was just a dupe of a very elaborate and apparently counterproductive disinformation program because he made a secret base now the most famous secret base in the world, which is not <laughs> what you would do with a disinformation program typically. Right. Um, but uh, he, he would seem to be one of the better hoaxers. He has not gone on the lecture circuit. He has not uh, made tried to make a lot of money off this. In fact, he is largely kept out of the public eye for uh, most of the time since 1989. And even according to George Knapp in 1989, uh, when they were about to broadcast his story, um, he like physically tried to wrestle the videotape away from George Knapp at the television station so it couldn't be aired. <laughs> and so <laughs> he may have been having second thoughts even then. And uh, Corbell says something similar happened with this documentary. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, well, I do want to say for the disinformation campaign, sometimes like a, a good illusionist will show you something with one hand while he's hiding something with the other. So yep. maybe S4 was this over here on one side. Don't but look we at got the saucers up here in Utah or something. <laughs> yeah. Don't look at N22 or whatever, <laughs> some other yeah. place. Uh, so that's, that's entirely possible that, uh, that he he's telling the truth as he, as he as he perceives it, uh, so that's uh, it, but it's interesting to look at it in its, in its entirety. 
So, Jimmy, I know you've got a ton of resources for folks who are more interested in finding out more about this. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of information. I'll have links to I won't go through them all, but I'll have links to uh, the Bob Lazar article on Wikipedia, link to Bob Lazar's homepage, uh, information on Jeremy Corbell and link to his documentary, as well as articles about a bunch of specific claims, uh, including that critique by a physicist of the of the uh, physics claims that Lazar has made. Excellent. And we'll have all of those on our website at sqpn.com. So that's awesome. It's a, it's a great story. Uh, and uh, and um, undoubtedly, there will be future shows in which we'll, we'll, we'll continue to talk about Area 51. And, and uh, aliens in general. Yes, aliens and associated locations. So and, uh, and other specific figures in ufology, like I mentioned in this episode, Barney and Betty Hill will definitely be talking about them. They were the first major abduction case that got a lot of press attention. Excellent. So uh, so let's let's get to our mysterious feedback. Um, this time we're going to talk about uh, feedback on our uh, show, in which we did an overview of the assassination of uh, President John F. Kennedy. And and uh, we had some some interesting feedback uh, let's see, from YouTube. Brian W. says uh, it was 100 percent Oswald. It's been studied to death by experts. If it was a conspiracy, it would have been exposed decades ago. How, how would you respond to that feedback, Jimmy? Well, it might have been 100 percent Oswald. Uh, I don't dismiss that possibility. On the other hand, people who people would say it has been studied to death and a lot of experts have concluded it was not Oswald and thus it was exposed decades ago. OK, right. Uh, just because. Yeah, people. You know, there's an equal weight on both sides there to, for and yeah. against, as we as we discussed in the show. OK, uh, from Facebook, Alfredo says uh, we all know it was CGB Spender. <laughs> yeah. So so that's a joke. CGB Spender is one of is possibly the real name, but also possibly an alias of the cigarette smoking man on the X-Files. Right. And there's an episode called Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, which is a kind of dark version of Forrest Gump where we learned that the cigarette smoking man has been responsible for all kinds of dark deeds in American recent American history, including the assassination of JFK. <laughs> X-Files fans. And I'm sure we have many of them in our audience. Uh, yeah. will appreciate that. Uh, also from Facebook, uh, a Leo Gregory uh, says, uh, I didn't do it. Oh, well, I'm sure that's what you would like us to think. A Leo Gregory. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, Robert on Facebook says, uh, obviously, it was a suicide. Wake up, people. Yeah, that's a little hard <laughs> to square with the Zapruder film. But, you know, there is death by cops. So uh, this could be an elaborate version of that. We are open to all possibilities where the evidence <laughs> leads us. Uh, Andrew, uh, also on Facebook, says, will you mention the Secret Service man in the following car that had an assault rifle? That went off when he dropped it in the car when or when he snatched at it after the first shot. Yeah. So this is a, a claim that's actually uh, been explored by some uh, conspiracy theorists that one of the Secret Service men in the follow up car may have like dropped his weapon and accidentally caused the fatal headshot. And that then, of course, because this would have been an enormous embarrassment to the Secret Service to kill the president by friendly fire, uh, that it was then covered up. And we will be talking about that in future episodes as we dig down more deeply into individual proposals about the JFK assassination. This was our overview <clears throat> episode to give people a broad look at the subject. But we will be looking at uh, a multiple multiple different theories, including Oswald only theories. 
Yeah, there was a lot, like we talked about last week uh, with the simulation hypothesis, there was a lot of feedback on the JFK episode. And so we will definitely be uh, covering more of, of, of your feedback um, in future shows uh, as we talk about this. So, and then uh, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week, Jimmy? <clears throat> so uh, for mysterious headlines, um, since we're talking about secret government doings, uh, I thought I'd include a link to a recent article about some new documents that have emerged concerning the MKUltra program. Uh, MKUltra was a program that was uh, run by the CIA um, several decades ago where they were investigating mind control, among other things. They were trying to say, like, how can we influence people to do what we need them to do, whether that's answer questions or other things. And um, it uh, it was run or one of the main guys running it was a guy named Sidney Gottlieb. And when the program was eventually shut down, a lot of the documents were apparently destroyed. Um, but <clears throat> there's been a cache of them that has uh, has now been uh, released dealing with mind control, drugs, hypnosis and things like that. And so I have a link to that. Mm -hmm. Also, related story, <clears throat> have a link to. Uh, a piece on MKUltra creating mind controlled dogs. Wow. And this is something also that we've known some of those kind of shadowy government agencies have been involved in. How can you use um, how can you use different animals to get into places where people can't? And can you like guide an insect with a listening device on it into a particular location? Can you guide a cat? with a listening device on it into a location. Um, that program was known as, a, or project was known as Acoustic Kitty. Um, <laughs> and and so apparently we've now got some uh, information about the CIA, or about MKUltra uh, working on mind-controlled dogs to get them where they needed to do so they could do what they needed to do. So have a link yeah. to that. I think if you could if you could create mind controlled uh, dogs or cats, you would be a billionaire. Everyone would buy one. <laughs> Cat, go in or out the door. Just don't stand in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, talking about merging uh, animals and machines, I have an article about using amoebas in computers. Huh. Um, apparently, uh, the way certain kinds of amoebas work, they can be tied into computer chips to solve uh, problems, um, and they're they're being explored as a potential element of future computing technology. So we may have biomechanical computers before too long. Wow, it's a little Star Trek in uh, the getting yeah. in there. Yeah, that's get those cheese cheese gel packs on your ship. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's our serious headlines. Uh, so. Uh, Folks, that, I guess that's going to wrap it up for us this time. So let us know, what did you think about this mystery surrounding Bob Lazar in Area 51 and, and what Jimmy uh, was able to uh, explain and explore with us? Uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page and leaving us some feedback. Or you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Remember to like this episode on our Facebook page or retweet it on Twitter. Uh, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or YouTube, where if you do subscribe, hit the bell to get notifications when a new episode is posted. Share the podcast with your friends 
and write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. Uh, the, the bigger the community, the more interesting the conversation becomes, and so we really appreciate that. You can find the relevant links to the resources from our discussion uh, and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes on sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>